This week, iconic musician Elvis Costello joins Richard Krauss in conversation. I haven't written a lot of songs about the rock and roll life. There are no songs with the word rock and roll title that I've written. Like rock and roll dentist, I haven't written that one. <laughs> rock and roll chiropractor, you know. But when people tell me complicated theories about things, people particularly who are paid to analyze them, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they're making a jigsaw puzzle without reference to the picture on the lid of the box. You know, they're, 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 they've made their idea up as to what this all means, and it's in a sort of hierarchy of their making. But that's not my idea. I'm thinking of the next 20 songs. I'm, I, I've made these ones. They're living now in a, on a record. I don't really care whether anybody thinks this is the best drawing anybody ever did. I did it, therefore it comes from me. It is my sense of humor. Not everybody hears a joke the same way. You know, so uh, if you want to know what I'm thinking, then this is what it is. Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy. I hope you're staying happy and safe. That was the voice of Elvis Costello as we talked about his new album, Hey Clockface, a collection of songs the Boston Globe said shows, quote, the restless eclecticism that has been one of the hallmarks of Elvis Costello's career. We'll tell you more about the album in just a minute. First, though, I want to have a look back. I know Elvis isn't overly interested in looking into the past. After 33 albums, hundreds of songs, and thousands of live shows, he still always has his eye on the most exciting thing, what's coming next. But his music has meant so much to me, I wanted to share a story before we get to the interview. In 1977, I was a young teenager living in small-town Nova Scotia. I asked my brother Gary, who lived in Toronto, to hunt down an LP called My Aim is True by some guy named Elvis Costello I had read about. Gary knew his way around a record store and on his next visit home brought a stack of records like Leaving Home by the Ramones, Low by David Bowie, I think Marquee Moon by Television was in there, and on the top of the pile was the record I had read so much about. Framed by a checkerboard pattern with inlaid lettering that read Elvis is King was My Aim is True by Elvis Costello. I threw on the record, side one, put it on my cheap Lenko turntable, and here's where the story starts to get a little hazy. 30 seconds in, I remember thinking, I will never have to listen to the corporate rock of Ario Speedwagon or Pablo Cruz ever again. Finally, someone was making music that spoke to me. I understood the passion. I got the anger. It also had a good beat and you could dance to it. Just under 40 minutes of pop punk songs that changed everything for me. I flipped that record over and over and over until I knew the words to all the songs. And from that moment on, I would never again listen to music that didn't speak directly to me. It turned me into an exacting and, I'll admit, probably sometimes insufferable music fan who would no longer accept the sugary sounds that spilled out of my radio. To me, My Aim Is True was art. The slick sounds of Oreo Speedwagon, Air Supply, and everyone else that streamed out of my radio day after day may have been more accessible to the ear, but this was visceral. 
I heard the snarl in Elvis's voice, the cynicism dripping off every line, and for me, that was the noise that art made. It was the liberation from my small town. The music came lunging at me like a drunk with a broken bottle, and I have never forgotten it. He sang like he meant it. He sang like he was bored and mad and mad of being bored. He sang like I felt. He sang to me. Over the years, I had the chance to meet Elvis Costello a couple of times, but never sit down for a formal interview until now. Ladies and gentlemen, here's my interview with Elvis Costello. Uh, Elvis, like most of us, uh, you're in isolation right now. Is this the longest you've been in one place since you started touring in the 1970s? Could well be. I think there was a year, maybe the end of the 80s, where I didn't tour very much. I might have been at home for most of that time, but I was traveling to make records. So this would certainly be uh, one of the uh, longest periods. And, and I'm grateful for it in many ways because it means that I have the most amount of uninterrupted time with my 13-year-old boys mm -hmm. than I've had since they were three months old. So, and time, both Diana and I have been here. She put together her record, This Dream of You, and I managed to put together Hey Clockface from recordings that were made shortly before the world went crazy. Well, the new album has a wide range of moods. Uh, we're all cowards now sounds angry, it's, it's very timely, while Hey Clockface has a more kind of upbeat vibe to it. How do you balance the sound that people expect from you with exploring new genres and, and new ideas every single time out? I never give the slightest thought to any of those things you just said. Uh, I, I just write the songs I, I write, and in this case, I, I went to Helsinki with the intention of making a sound like No Flag or Hetty O'Hara Confidential. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I went there with a guitar and an old drum machine and everything else I found in the studio. A young engineer who didn't have a rule book about what a rock and roll record should sound like, so this is the noise that we came out with. Then I went to a studio in Paris all of which sounds incredibly outlandish now when we can't even go to the corner for a newspaper. But back then we could do that. And uh, I worked for two days with a wonderful ensemble of players put together by Steve Naive, who's been my colleague for the best part of 43 years. And we made these songs, you know, in live performance in the studio, uh, listening to one another, no written arrangements, everything being felt and understood in the moment the way a lot of great music has been made over the years, but all too infrequently is done uh, in that manner the, these days. So I think I was rewarded by the trust in both the chaotic sort of experimental nature of, you know, going into the playroom on your own mm -hmm. and then going into a room with some people, many of whom I'd not met before, and just talking in the language of music. You're listening to my interview with Elvis Costello. Find his new album, Hey Clockface, wherever you legally buy or download music. And that must have lent a, a different energy to the recordings. People who you had not met before, working with for the first time. Uh, did it change the sound that you heard in your head? Is that is that different than what you got on the album? No, I sort of heard a dream, of, particularly of that Paris session, I knew the instruments that we had assembled were somewhat unusual. There was, there was a percussionist uh, playing lightly on the drums, but not with a heavy, big backbeat. There was no bass player. So who, who took care of the bass register of each accompaniment could be shared between the piano or the cello 
or one of the low reed instruments. Uh, Rene, the, the person who plays clarinet and tenor saxophone on many of the songs, also brought a contrabass clarinet, which is a huge contraption which goes down very deep. His colleague, Mikhail, the trumpet player, also brought a serpent, which is a very ancient instrument with a very, very unusual sound, which is the very first thing you hear on this record. So right away, I think, if you put this record on and drop the needle on it, as I hope you will, uh, you hear a, a kind of strange tone of this instrument, which puts you in a, another place entirely. And, and that's the way I felt as, as the music was developing. And I simply read these opening lines as a preface to the, to the songs on the record. The title track, Hey Clockface, sounds like a song that your father might have sung with a big band. Hey Clockface, keep your fingers on the dial. You stole those precious moments and the kisses from her smile. My dad would have probably not played something like this. My dad no. was a bebop player. This music is definitely borrows the clothes of a song from the 1930s. My dad was uh, was born in 1927, so although he, he grew up with music uh, in the house that my grandfather brought back from America, I don't think my grandfather's taste really extended to jazz, whereas my dad, one of the reasons they would argue about music was my grandfather was a military-trained bandsman, and my father wanted to play the music that Dizzy Gillespie was making in in in, in America. And later on, he became a, a band singer. So he sang all sorts of music. But, you know, I don't ever recall him singing anything remotely like this. Mm. This is uh, an imagining of all my own. Um, I wrote songs in this kind of harmonic language when I was 19. And I wrote one that I'm very fond of about 10 years ago. So it's something that I will refer to just as I might sometimes want to write a rock and roll song or something that I, I could imagine being recorded in Memphis sometime in 1965. I mean, sometimes we do that, you know, like writers go on journeys in their imagination. Musicians can also do that. And it was very joyful to play Hey Croc Face, a song which really all it says is, when you're waiting for the one you love, time moves slowly. When it's time for them to go, time speeds up. So maybe the clock is your romantic rival. That's all the song is saying. It's it's a simple idea that you might have found in a song in the 1930s. So we quote uh, a Fats Waller, Andy Rassaf tune called How Can You Face Me? I uh, said to Mikel, the trumpet player, do you know this tune? And he didn't, so I sang it for him. And that's what we kicked the tune off with. And I quote, four lines of the song at the end to bring it to a conclusion but it was a it was an absolute gas to play that tune with those chaps you're listening to my interview with elvis costello his new album hey Clockface" is available right now recorded in helsinki and paris last february but finished during the pandemic via the miracle of telecommunications or at least that's what the press release for the album says it offers up what we expect from elvis costello and that's the unexpected the songs are a mix of everything from loud and proud to intimate and beautiful bound together by Elvis's trademarked wit, smarts, gorgeous melodies, and beautiful chord progressions. 
It's an eclectic album that feels like the culmination of decades of exploring all types of music and sounds. While working on the album, Elvis stayed busy in politics and charity. He played the Preservation Hall livestream benefit and joined Mick Jagger, Lord, Pearl Jam, and many more artists in signing an open letter demanding politicians stop playing unauthorized music during events, and that is a hot-button topic in this election year. When we come back, Elvis talks about why he sometimes feels like Dr. Frankenstein, how he became a singer, and what he thinks about people who try and interpret his songs. You don't want to miss that. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so glad you could spend part of your day with us. I'm Richard Krauss, in conversation with Elvis Costello. For over four decades, Elvis Costello has been one of rock and roll's most prolific songwriters. In his varied career, he's worked with everyone from Burt Bacharach and the Brodsky Quartet to Swedish mezzo-soprano Anne-Sophie von Otter and Paul McCartney, and then everyone else in between. His new record, Hey Clockface, available now wherever you buy fine music, sees him work with longtime bandmate Steve Naive as well as jazz guitarist Bill Frizzell and many others. The result is an album that feels familiar yet fresh. It dips in and out of rock, pop, and jazz and includes the rocker No Flag, a protest song of sorts that feels fitting for the current topsy-turvy world situation. We begin this segment by talking about that song. No Flag, another song from the album, sounds to my ear like a, a protest song. Uh, in the in the fragmented world today, does music, do you think, have the same ability to move people to action? I have no idea. Mm. Um, that isn't why I write songs. I don't have that ambition for my songs. If a song consoles or infuriates somebody to the point where they are either, you know, made to feel as if they're not alone in a thought or they stand up and feel like they're shaking the fist at something, that's that's their theme song, isn't it? You know, that song, No Flag, is the theme song for that day when you wake up and you feel that there is no philosophy, no religion, no allegiance, no hope that, you know, will console you. To my mind, it's much better to sing about that than to hold it inside like poison. Um, that's always been the way. That's why I write things down, so they're not in my head. And uh, that's the theme song for one uh, outlook. And there's many other songs on the record, as you hear, that, that speak of different days and different feelings. And some of them tender, some of them regretful. And I think that's somewhat like life. Are, are they always personal? Or, or I know that you create characters in your songs as well. But do they all well, come from... characters like a writer does. You put, mm -hmm. you, you animate them, you, you know... Uh, we're like Mary Shelley's Dr. Frankenstein, yes. you know, uh, to some degree. Um, all the songs are our monsters, you know. Um, no, you do. You, you obviously put little details in. Even if you're writing a hateful character, mm -hmm. uh, it has to be something you know, otherwise it wouldn't ring true. Uh, Hetty O'Hara Confidential is a... a portrait of a sort of 
monster from a bygone era where they wielded a poison pen and currency of gossip and slander. Well, you know, reach into your pocket. You've got a device that can mm -hmm. allow you to do that. So somebody like that doesn't hold sway so much anymore. There, there's a hundred million people that could do the same job. So that's a comic song, obviously. That's a that's the comedy number of the record. You know? I saw that as a, a comment on the idea of social media that we are so quick to react. Well, to there's a verse in now. it. There's a there's a verse in it that I think it's fairly easy to understand what's being said. They have witch trials now, mm -hmm. which is despair and a jukebox jury full of judgment and fury with bright neon dresses and porn star hair. I think you can probably deduce what that is. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to my interview with Elvis Costello. Find his new album, Hey Clockface, wherever fine music is sold. 33 albums in, has your uh, songwriting process changed? Of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Hetty O'Hara, Confidential, I held in my head until the very moment I performed it in the studio. It has to have this sort of clattering percussion in order to let loose the stream of words that mm -hmm. I dreamed up. Another time you could sit down and write an, you know, an orderly version of uh, a text that is made into a verse, chorus, bridge form and, and find a nice melody to sing it. When Michael Leonard, my friend from New York, sent me the music for what became Radio is Everything, it was more a continuous piece of music and consequently some of the thoughts that I had been working on in, a, in the verses that you hear uh, were allowed the space to live, and I simply had to react to the music. Melody didn't, wasn't necessary. It became a recitation in, with the music interacting with those words, and sometimes, by wonderful coincidence, you know, the music would seem to be commenting even though the music came first. Um, I guess I listened to it once, sense where the flow of the music was, and what you're hearing is a recording of me writing that song. So that's, that's spontaneous. You know? yeah. I wasn't making the words up on the spot, but I was joining them to the music in, that, in the moment of that recording. And a different take would have reached a different agreement, maybe better, but maybe not. You know? That it, was the one I wanted. Is that kind of process uh, only possible now that you uh, are so confident in your craft as a songwriter and as an artist, uh, would it have been something you could have done years ago? Or are you just now so much more aware of the work that you're able to, to do that kind of thing and take that sort of risk? Well, I think I always would have wanted to do that. I, I, I would often will songs into existence. <laughs> I, I very rarely just came into the studio with just uh, an idea and no melody or no words but I was always with the uh, on the attractions records trying to write songs on one chord mm. I mean I wanted them to have you know I wanted to see if I could actually make a three-minute song with hardly any change of harmony that was one of the things I tried to do and I didn't <clears throat> succeed in entirely pulling it off but you know big boys from my armed forces and uncomplicated these are just two songs that many people wouldn't know mm -hmm. Two examples of songs where I managed to get close to that, wait a long time until there was a release from that first tone. So that's the same sort of thing. I, I think it's everything I've ever done has been like a door opening to another set of possibilities. I uh, didn't always appreciate that at the time uh, as because I didn't preconceive it. An invitation would arrive, an opportunity to work with somebody different circumstances, different location, different result. When you come out of it, you carry something with you that you have uh, 
incidentally, learned or gathered. You're listening to my interview with Elvis Costello. Find his new album, Hey Clockface, in stores now. When we come back, Elvis and I talk about why sometimes creeping up on an old song is the best approach. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Richard Krauss in conversation with Elvis Costello. This interview is a bucket list interview for me. I've met Elvis Costello twice before this, once in a hotel lobby where, frankly, I accosted him and told him how much my aim is true changed my life. But before I got to the really good part where I talk about how each generation gets their own music, the music that really speaks to them, like my father had Bing Crosby, my older brother had Jimi Hendrix, and now I had Elvis Costello to define my generation, I could sense that his eyes were glazing over, so I moved on happy to simply have had the chance to shake his hand. The second time was just as quick, so this conversation means a lot to me, and I'm glad to be able to share it with you today. We begin this portion of the interview by talking about how he learned to read music later in his career. of when I first started. I'd written hundreds of songs before I ever needed to write any of them down on the page. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad that I can do that because I only only need do it sometimes. Even on this record, all of the music that you hear on the Paris session was was improvised. The, the only written music other than chord changes were the opening bars of I Do, the first ballad on the record that was the only part piece of music that was written on the page that i wrote down so that those precise harmonies were played everything else was you know the instinct of the players and that's mm -hmm. pretty remarkable it has to be exciting it's almost as if you're thinking as one brain or something you you have everyone thinking so in tune with one another that you can pull something like that off well obviously it really really helps that steve was at the center of the ensemble. Steve Naive and I must have developed some kind of instinct close to telepathy by now. You know, I, sometimes he'll take off in a direction I'm not expecting and it may I have to adjust even when we play with just the two of us. But we've done a lot of concerts with just two of us where I'm just singing or I'm playing a little guitar and leaving most of the accompaniment to him. Uh, in this case, he played with great restraint, allowing those other instruments the foundation for what that which they added and we had a cellist you know who it's rare to get a cellist who improvises most mm. of them like the, the dots written down in front of them i knew we had the right fella when he said you know if we need extra drums i'm good at stamping my feet and you hear that sound on the record I kind of, a cellist who stamps his feet that's my kind of guy you know that's like uh, you know he brought like a, a sense of fun and playfulness to what on the outset when you see the instruments written down, you might have imagined it all very somber and serious, and the mood of some of the songs is quite intimate and melancholy. But the act of making this record, even though it was very brief time in the studio, was incredibly joyful, lots of laughter. And we had to speak through music because I don't speak any French. A couple mm -hmm. of the guys were not completely conversational, so we didn't waste any time saying anything. You know, we just played and felt it. I saw you in uh, 2017, and I just thought, this is so wonderful. We're seeing 
uh, art being created in, in front of us. It was, it was uh, just a wonderful moment of seeing something that was completely new and completely fresh. Well, thank you. I mean, it's a great, you know, I started out to be a songwriter, not a singer. Mm -hmm. And I was given the job of recording my first songs because nobody, nobody else either <laughs> wanted to or could sing them. Right. They're actually much trickier than they sound. They sound like there isn't much tune to many of them, but their words alone are a challenge. So I ended up with this job of fronting a band. And obviously over the years, I've tried to renew that for myself so that it doesn't become some tired script. I mean, I had a spinning songbook in which mm -hmm. the, all of the songs were chosen like in a, as in a game show. I had uh, a, a show called Detour, a solo show where I got to tell some stories around the time I was writing my book. And I was trying to look at the how the, these songs came into existence. The, the show you, you saw that you're referring to took an album from 35 years ago and played many of the songs the way we hear them now. Or because we had the ensemble we did with singers, we had Kitten Caroy and Rihanna Lee singing with Davy Farragher, we were able to uh, sing the vocal arrangements that were on the recorded version for the first time. So that was exciting. Right. And then that gave us the space. By doing that, that gave us the space. Uh, the scale of those songs allowed me the freedom, I think, to take a moment to sing a song that's been with me for 40 years. Now, if I don't sing it with some curiosity and respect, how am I going to expect it to mean anything to the audience? I mean, sometimes creeping up on an old song is the best way to get it to be new again. You know, it could become something that's, you get the applause for the opening couple of lines and then the halfway through people drift off into their reverie of their memory of it, but I'm not actually, it could be singing itself. That doesn't do for me. I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to change them so you don't recognize them, but I am trying to put myself in a position. Sometimes it's, it's really a matter of the song you choose leading into it. Like it could be a brand new song that comes before it or something a little unusual that you wouldn't expect, puts me in a different mind, connects me to that song in a different way because inevitably it isn't the moment in which I wrote it originally. It's the moment in which I recognize something in it that is valuable to me in the way that I hope it's more than just nostalgia for somebody in the audience. I mean, people will come and tell me that songs I've written have some personal significance to them for because it happened at some moment in their life. That's a tremendous honor that you to be part of somebody's life in that way. And you can only say thank you. And, you know, sometimes it's joyful circumstances, sometimes it isn't. Mm -hmm. You're listening to my interview with Elvis Costello. Find his new album, Hey Clockface, wherever fine music is sold. Do the songs take on different meanings to you? I mean, I think you just answered this, but do they take on different meanings to you? Do you discover new things about them? Uh, or, or are there just things that were always there that you're unearthing? A bit of both. Mm -hmm. I think there were always things, always lines that had sort of personal meaning, particularly some of the songs that were use words in a slightly more impressionistic way. There might have been specific references there that were nobody's business, but they gave me the feeling to sing them to make the whole, now that would be one line I'm talking about, mm -hmm. would give, that, give me the ability to sing the whole song as if it mat mattered. Um, and it's not important always to let everybody in on every little secret meaning within a, a dense lyric, particularly. Simple lyrics different. It's obvious to everybody what you're saying. But I write in a number of different ways, as you know. And uh, I, I think 
that's one of the beautiful things about, you know, writing songs is you can imagine yourself in somebody else's position. You can, as you said, create a character, try and invest it with some of the, your own feelings or thoughts, or at least kind of have the certainty that you know that that rings true. Uh, it doesn't have to ring true to every single person in the audience, but if it rings true to one person, then it's real. I love what Andy Warhol said when people would ask him, uh, what does this painting mean? And he would say, well, what does it mean to you? And I think well, that's, that's not always a bad been... thing to say. It sounds like a get out clause, but it's not a bad thing to say. And, uh, you know, when people tell me complicated theories about things, people particularly who are paid to analyze them, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they're making a jigsaw puzzle without reference to the picture on the lid of the box. <laughs> you know, they're, 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 they've made their idea up as to what this all means, and it's in a sort of hierarchy of their making. But that's not my idea. I mean, um, <clears throat> I'm thinking of the next 20 songs. I'm, I, I've made these ones. They're living now in a, on a record. I'm really glad we did it. I've had fun releasing them. I've been, you know, let to release them somewhat unexpectedly throughout the summer. So they've been arriving intermittently. Uh, I, I got to make these uh, little pictures to go with them, which have been fun to do with, with my colleague, uh, Paul Guthrie. And, uh, you know, that's a way just of connecting it. I, I, I don't really care whether anybody thinks this is the best drawing anybody ever did. I did it, therefore it comes from me. It is my sense of humor. And not everybody hears a joke the same way. You know, so uh, if you want to know what I'm thinking, then this is what it is. Stay with us when we come back. Elvis Costello talks about taking his mother to see him perform live in concert just before the pandemic shut down live touring for 2020. Welcome back everyone. I'm Richard Krauss in conversation with Elvis Costello. We've talked about Elvis Costello's latest album, Hey Clockface, now available from Concord Records. And we've touched on his songwriting process. In this section, we get personal. Elvis talks about making music at home and how he and his wife, superstar jazz artist Diana Krall, were working on albums at the same time in isolation. Here's more with Elvis Costello. We started off by talking about uh, being off the road. Your last UK tour, which ended uh, before the lockdown, began at the Liverpool Olympia. And I wanted to know mm -hmm. what it was like to have your mother there in the same ballroom where she had danced during the mid-40s after the Second World War. She's there, she's watching you perform. There must have been a, a, a poignancy to that for you. Oh, it was a, it, well, that's the thing, you know, when I look at it, when I say it was, it sounds kind of very outlandish to say, I took myself to Helsinki to record because we can't imagine that anymore, right. getting on a plane to go anywhere. Um, equally, one of the reasons I was, planned those recording dates was because this tour was to open in Liverpool and I knew I had to be there. I had no expectation of my mother being at any show of mine two years ago. She had a very severe stroke and has fought back with uh, a will that makes my own seem feeble uh, to a degree of, uh, you know, she was retained dexterity and the ability to communicate with your patient to listen. Uh, she doesn't have any uh, sadly any mobility to be doing anything like dancing but so it was particularly beautiful that she made it to the show could join us there there were friends of mine that uh, she hadn't seen for 50 years 
um, that I went to school with. Uh, and, you know, she got to actually sit in a chair on that dance floor when it, when the place cleared out at the end of the night and she was still the last person out of the building. So nothing changes. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, um, of course, you know, that was in those happy, carefree mm-hmm. days when we thought we would just go ahead to the end of the tour. By the second week, we were starting to see a few empty seats in what we took to be sold-out houses. And uh, by the time we got to the last two shows, it was more apparent than ever and I came into the wings at the end of the main set at the Hammersmith Apollo and said to the guys, uh, okay, let's play Hurry Down Doomsday, The Bugs Are Taking Over. <laughs> a song of mine from 1990. That'll give people a little bit of a a lift, you know, because you're saying, well, we really don't know what this mm-hmm. is. By the next day, I heard that they were planning to close the border here, and... Uh, I knew I had to come home, and I knew I was putting my crew and the band, and most importantly the audience, in harm's way by, because nobody would make a decision. And you know, I made it back to Diana and the boys in on Vancouver Island, where we spent the spring and early summer. And you know, meanwhile, the Prime Minister of England's in the ICU, so I guess I made the right decision. You know, uh, it was the right thing to stop. It was frustrating because it was three shows from the end of the tour. Mm. But the time I've had since, I wouldn't trade for anything, including the, you know, the space of which to think. I've written a tremendous amount of different writing for lots of different occasions, and lots of songs, songs for other people, songs for myself, all of which you'll hear in good time. But to have finished this record is because I have a production partner in Sebastian Chris who was able to look at all of this music that came from these different sources and not make it all sound the same mm-hmm. but to make it sound compatible and I, and I watched Diana put her record together over you know we don't look over each other's shoulder and complete each other's thoughts but it's very thrilling to hear her put together something as exquisite as Autumn in New York with her friend Mark Salliger to see to for her to say look at this and and this is this beautiful recording and this very poignant black and white film of New York, a place that we spend time in and see the streets deserted as aerial photography. And I think, well, yeah, but all our friends are inside those buildings and one day soon they'll all come out again. And that's what we must believe. You know, I, I don't know how it is where you are. I know it's been a little tougher out in the East in Quebec and in Ontario, but we've had, the information that needed to be imparted to us for common sense uh, reported to us on a daily basis with some coherence and understanding, not the sort of snake oil salesman version of it that, that it pertains to the South or the absolute dog's breakfast that of uh, or, you know of organisational chaos that that that's uh, pertained in the UK. So or rather in England, really, because Scotland and Wales have done pretty well. Mm-hmm. It must be, we must be grateful for this. You're listening to my interview with Elvis Costello. Find his new album, Hey Clockface, wherever fine music is sold. Well, I read an interview with Diana who said, the beauty of all being together in isolation is the excitement at wondering what you're going to play for her at the end of the day. Are you trying out new songs? Are you trying out things that are just for her what 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 kind of things are you playing oh well that would be giving away secrets if i told you <laughs> it's what true. yeah but no i i i we, you know we both of us uh 
you know, we share our life, so there is some influence upon each other in that sense, but not in terms of musical choices. Mm. Of course, I think both of us like the reveal, you know, like to say, here it is, listen to this, this is our finished record or a finished... I don't even uh, think that we're talking about individual songs as so much as... I mean, I think that the, I knew Diana was working, I could hear music playing, and I was aware she was... I've got to go, I'm getting on the phone with Al Schmidt, who who mixed her record and she has worked with a long time, one of the great, great mm -hmm. producers and later engineers. He began as a producer of Sam Cooke of all people. And then, and then over the years has engineered or produced Neil Young, the Jefferson airplane and people that you don't associate with the music that Diana has played in the past. But I think that that is why they were able to get to something very different with taking recordings that existed and really focusing on what was within them. So I don't think she wanted to reel that even to me until they were complete with that work. So my, I got the, you know, I was the lucky guy that got to hear the finished thing for the first time. That was wonderful. And uh, I'm sure we had a moment like that with my record, you know, one of the, one of the little clips that I made uh, with um, Arlo McFurlow, as we call him, uh, you know, we'd all watch those, and uh, there's a there's a lot of activity in our house all the time. We're also sharing the space with two other people, you know, with two young lads with their own ideas and interests. <laughs> well, Diana was the very first guest on this show uh, when we debuted almost four years ago. You have good taste. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought so, too. And she told me that uh, you love watching old movies, that the two of you watch old movies. And when I learned that, I, I went back and listened to songs again, and I was wondering how in films have influenced the storytelling in your songwriting, or have they? Because so many of the characters are so vivid, there's a cinematic feel to a great deal of it. Is it just something that you've absorbed? Is it something that you studied? What is it? I don't think I've studied anything. I didn't go to college or anything like that. Most of these things I gathered. I think that most of my understanding comes from music and movies more than books. People, because I can move words around on a page, people assume I've read every book on the shelf, and I really haven't because I've been doing this. You know, I've been traveling and playing shows, and um, <clears throat> I... I, I do love to watch uh, movies from other times, whether even silent movies can, mm. can, that seems strange that it would affect the way songs are, but the images can be very strong. Some, both of us will respond to things that will, will perhaps emerge some other time in, in, in music. And therefore you've got a, uh, you know, cinematic, cinematic imagery, even in a spoken word film that might influence the way an arrangement sounds rather than an image in a lyric. But, you know, right back to watching The Detectives, that contains camera directions in the lyric. And I've, I've used that device on a few, in a few different songs to create that sense that, that it's all happening in a film. That I've written songs about people wishing to be in the movies or having some life, you know, some fantasy life like that. I haven't written a lot of songs about the rock and roll life. There are no songs with the word rock and roll in the title that I've written like rock and roll dentist. I haven't written that one. <laughs> rock and roll chiropractor, you know. Those can be saved for the next album. Well, 
for yeah. now, while you're in isolation and we're in a pandemic, watch Panic in the Streets. If you like old movies, it's a Richard Whitmore no, movie. No, I, 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 I thought it was incredibly bad taste. Silver Screen aired that in the first few weeks of really? the pandemic. I thought it was in very poor form to do that. I, I think there's a few others. that there's, there's a film, of course, that I'm working on. Right about now, we would have been in preview for the opening night of a musical that I've been working on for the last four years, which has a, an excellent movie rendition, uh, Ilya Kazan's A Face in the Crowd. I love that movie. When I say Ilya Kazan, he directed it. It was written by Bud Schulberg, mm -hmm. and that is the text that we are adapting. I've written songs, and my colleague Sarah Rule has written the book, as they call it. And we are about to enter into a, another workshop because, you know, you can use these devices that we're speaking on now to move things forward uh, until the day when they announce that theatres can safely open and audiences return. We have to keep working. And that's what I'm spending my time doing now, working on that, working on other uh, comic dramas, uh, all sorts of things that will occur in the new year. Lots of great surprises, that's what I can tell you. Um, to, you know, hopefully, you know, send up a flare, set, you know, reach out best we can until we can all be together again. That's it, that's one for the bucket list, my interview with Elvis Costello. His new album, Hey Clockface, is available now from Concord Records, wherever you legally download or buy music, or maybe even go to a brick and mortar store if you can find one that's open near you. It's a tremendous record. My thanks to Elvis for spending some time with me today, but as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for tuning in. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon. <laughs>